The following is a pre recorded program. 906 at News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here on a. What night is it? It's Monday night. It is Monday night. Uh, closer to them, pull the microphone up. I haven't done my job here. And I, I want this you this gentleman's voice to be heard because I always enjoy it. He only will come and visit me once a year, but he cannot, because of his profession, legitimately refuse to because uh, all historians of France have to pay heed to the French Revolution. I'm making this up, of course. (laughs) I would come more often, Tom, but that's okay. I'm happy to be here. Well, we need to to talk about Napoleon (laughs) III sometime or something like that. Well, we could. Or the the Paris Commune or something like that. The Second Empire. Uh, (laughs) About 10, 12 years ago, I went looking for uh, a French historian a French historian, to talk about the French Revolution because that's something that pops up a lot in the world, just as the American Revolution does. And rather many folks, the last time they even heard of it was when they were in in school, if they heard of it then. And uh, I I like to commemorate things. And um, about a week and a half ago, there were a lot of firecrackers going off at this time of night, and it was in celebration of the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, and uh, the, the the British get to shoot off their firecrackers on Guy Fawkes Day in November, but the French get to do it on July the 14th. That's right. And that was yesterday. And we're not on yesterday, so we invi- invited Dr. Stephen Vincent, who teaches history at NC State University. His pedigree includes, I think, uh, uh, I think he got his Ph.D. at uh, the University of California at Berkeley. Is that not right? That's right. Okay. You're, you're, you're uh, another graduate of that place, Dr. Stephen Reynolds. You, if you haven't met, met him, you need to meet him. He's a physicist at, at NC State. But I always enjoy uh, when Dr. Vincent comes because, uh, well, the truth is I give him a ride when we come out here, and we have the best time talking on uh, here. But tonight we're going to talk about, in a leisurely way, the French Revolution, when it happened and sort of why it happened, and some of the themes that one could identify with it. Because after it, although it did not uh, in some senses succeed, it did succeed because it uh, it um, sort of lives on even, even now. Uh, yeah. When you see the crowds in the streets, when 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 I was thinking the other week, there were a group of North Carolinians who were arrested for demonstrating in the state capitol a couple of years ago or something. And that's sort of in the spirit of the French Revolution, because this is one of the first times that the mass of urban people had an effect on on the government. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, Tom, thanks for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, talk about anything but the French Revolution in particular. <clears throat> Yeah, the crowds, um, the French do like to get in the streets and demonstrate. And, and that may come in part from the French Revolution and the experience of people during that uh, revolutionary period. And July 14th was, of course, the day that the crowds in Paris made such an impact on the experience uh, that the French were having of the revolution. You know, I mean, to set the stage for the, the, the July 14th. Well, let me just ask you a question. What was wrong? 
Well, there are several things. There are lots of things that were wrong. <laughs> I know. I but mean, that's, mean, but that's, it, the, that's the difficult question. I mean, the, the people thought what was wrong was the grain prices were too high. Right. And that there were troops moving in in the region of Paris, and they got suspicious that that was to perhaps restore order, whatever that might mean, in Paris. And that made him a bit nervous. But it was politicized because of the things that had been going on outside of Paris, in particular in Versailles, where the National Assembly was meeting. So the National Assembly was meeting because there was a fiscal crisis. That is, the monarchy got in trouble financially, was worried it couldn't uh, borrow enough money to keep operating. So that got the political stuff going, but the people in Paris were mostly concerned about economic issues and this notion of security that maybe these troops were going to come in. So they went to where they could to find weapons and powder, and one of those places was the Bastille, this castle-like structure in, in, within Paris, they descended on that on, on, uh, on July 13th, which was a Monday, and didn't get any satisfaction because they couldn't get in. The next day, they marched there again, and the defenders of the Bastille, which were basically some disabled veterans and about 30 Swiss guards, fired on the crowds and killed 98 people. And that, of course, set the crowds in action. They went around Paris finding cannons and other weapons and came back to lay siege to the Bastille and ultimately prevailed. They broke in, got in, cut the heads off, of, cut the head off of the man who was the head of the uh, group of soldiers there, Launay, and killed, I think, five or six others, but not very many. But nonetheless, this symbolically was important. But this was the first point at which the get back to your question, mm -hmm. that the crowd really got into having an impact on the French Revolution. Before, it had been much more about politics, elections, extremely important for the way the revolution unfolded. But the crowds essentially saved the revolution from perhaps being suppressed by the king. We aren't, we're not sure what the king was up to. And he'd called all these troops in, and perhaps he was thinking of suppressing not only the National Assembly, but restoring order in Paris. And the crowd's actions made the king think again, because the next day he pulled the troops out of the Paris Basin, and then did some other things that led to um, the ex seemingly, at any rate, the acceptance of the changes that were taking place. Well, I, I did a little reading today, and um, I, th I think it's safe to say that Louis XVI, who is the king, mm -hmm. he, who lives at Versailles, which is, what, about 20 miles from Paris. That's, that's right. where, where he lives, and it's exactly. still worth going to, I'm told. I've never been there, but I, I would gather— It's a fancy place. It's a fancy—a lot of mirrors. <laughs> a lot of mirrors. <laughs> I'll tell you, you don't feel comfortable if you're a 21st century person. There's just—the rooms are too big. You need— mm -hmm. He knew it all that pomp and circumstance and regalia and what have you. But. Well, he's the king, and he's an absolute monarch, and, but things are rocky because he's run out of money. He's run out of money. And, and in fact, the Americans had helped him run out of money, if I That's remember right. correctly, because he spent a lot trying to help us win our revolution. But And I know that some of these, these groups that are meeting who are politicians, that is not men in the streets, but people who may hold positions, 
uh, one of those had not met since 1614. Uh, That's right. And and so some things are, are rocking along and changing a little bit. And then you have the the regular folks. Yeah, yeah. He got he got in a fiscal crisis. That is this problem of not having enough money to pay the bills. Half of the money that came into the coffers of the French king in 1788, 50% went to just pay interest on the debt. And he was worried, as he should have been worried, and as his advisors told him, that he probably is not going to be able to borrow any more money. No one's going to trust him, and he's not going to be able to pay it back. So two years before this, he called up the nobles, an assembly of notables, it's called, 144 people, in the hopes that he could convince them to pony up more money. Because mm-hmm. okay. they were, they didn't pay many taxes. Paid a few, but not very many. Most of the taxes fell on the poor folks. They did that didn't work out. And the fallback position was to call the Estates General, which, as you say, hadn't met since 1614. So 175 years later, it meets finally, 1789, after the elections and things. And uh, clearly, he hoped that they would pass some tax reform. That would save the fiscal uh, situation of the monarchy. But they wanted other things as well. They wanted political reform. And it looked like he was signing on to, in fact, moving France to being some sort of constitutional monarchy. That's what was in play at Versailles Mm -hmm. when the crowd stormed into the scene here in uh, July, July 14th. It seemed like to me in the little reading I just just did in the last couple of days that part of that was, though, that it was not clear what— you've already hinted at this. It was not entirely clear what he was up to. That's right. And uh, some strange things are going to happen. Well, there are troops moving around the borders from from, uh, Prussia, for instance— and his wife is is Austrian. Is Austrian. Her mother is Maria Theresa, who's the, the Empress of Austria. And the people may have had the feeling that these people are going to invade us, and something really squirrely is going to happen. I, this is called a tease, by the way, <laughs> in that he and the royal family try to get out of France, and they won't hold on. You get to you get to as Ricky Ricardo would say, explain it when we come back. But they wouldn't let him get out. Uh, and no, that's uh, that's true. The flight of Varennes was a failure. Right, we and can talk more about that. and it was not common in those days to depose a monarch. That just didn't happen. And the British had done it and had gotten away with it. That is, they chopped Charles the first head off, but they had been able to to get uh, his uh, son back on the throne. And then when when things looked uh, dicey with regard to religion, they were able to bar- borrow a monarch from somewhere. <laughs> In fact, a whole family of monarchs. But, I mean, they didn't have to kill but one. And, uh, and, and, well, the uh, French only killed one, too. It was, uh, you know, the king, as you, as you say, looked like he was on board for these <laughs> reforms that were going forward. And the National Assembly, the guys out in Versailles ended up writing a constitution, although they moved to Paris. That's another bit of violence that took place. And they ended up writing it by 1791, and it looked like the king's on board. But clearly he wasn't. And in June of 1791, he decides he's going to get out of Dodge, and he tries to get to the Austrian border with his wife. They build these carriages in secret, especially large carriages that hold lots of things, and they pack up the, the jewels of the family and the fancy clothes and ladies-in-waiting, and they all try to get to the Austrian border, but they don't get there. They're, they're, they, they leave late, and um, 
the people who are supposed to have fresh horses at a certain point aren't there anymore because they didn't think he was showing up. And he pulls into this town of Varennes, and he's recognized, even so, though he doesn't have royal clothes on. I him. can see the guy, though. I mean, I've imagined that he says, he goes back into the tavern and says, guess who's out? <laughs> that's right. Exactly. I was like, that's just about what happened. That's, that's right. Be like the president showing up at your coffee house, you know, and announce. I mean, who is this guy? Wait, I know who he is. But he's on the run, and they don't want him to get away because he has— Marie Antoinette's mother is the big, big mother, and, and the, these countries around them are powerful. Uh, yeah, it's a dilemma for the man at Varennes. The, uh, you know, the officials of this town are saying, well, the king's here. Why is he here? We haven't been told he's here. I mean, he is the sovereign. I'm supposed to follow the, whatever he tells me to do. On the other hand, there is this national assembly that has some power and I'm a bit suspicious so he go he he sends word back to Paris to say what the heck am I supposed to do and they say don't let him go and he holds on to him and I think and we're going to take a break I think that what you just put your finger on as a a man of the street man on the street reading the history you've you've hit on the point that is the central point in fact up to up until that time you were supposed to do what the king said. And that's, in fact, what was true in America. But one of the things in the Declaration of Independence is they're saying, look, king, you didn't do what, and this is why we're leaving. And so, and and this man is confronted with, do I join this other group of people who are saying down with the king, or do I do what I'm told? And that, it, it took a while for people to get the idea that they could be disloyal. We're talking about the French Revolution. We're not going to cover every aspect of it tonight, but rather do what I call stirring the pot a little bit. And the hope would be that uh, at the end of it, you will want to go wherever you go to learn more about things, the Internet or the library or wherever. And undoubtedly, Dr. Vinson, Dr. Stephen Vinson, who is our guest tonight, will recommend a couple of books to you. There are some really good ones and, uh, and want to understand what got loose in the world because it has been loose in the world and a good bit of the 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 rustle and, and back and forth that's been going on in the world this is the the warning sign right here this is when it, it it's it's apparent that there are going to be some problems one of those precipitating events it is indeed i like the word precipitating events we'll be back news radio 24. We're going to have about five minutes, Dr. Vincent, before we take our next break here. So, okay. uh, we have talked about why the French Revolution may have come about and uh, how the drama surrounding the king begins to come. And if you know anything about it, you probably know that he's not going to make it through. And maybe what we can talk about now is why he does not make it through and what, what, what that means, because the, the part that usually gets the most buildup is going to be after we take our next break. When we come back, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. Yeah, well, there's a little bloodshed now, too. I mean, it, it's, an, it's amazing how little bloodshed there is in the French Revolution up until this point. Um, you know, there's been about 100 people killed at the Bastille, a few other people uh, in the October days, the Swiss Guards in 1789. But it's a fairly nonviolent revolution, and France is on the road to being a constitutional monarchy. They finished the Constitution in 1791. Well, it's that point that things start to get out of control, partly because the king decides he really didn't buy into this at all. And as we just talked about, he tries to leave the country, is apprehended, sent back to Paris. That leads lots of people to begin to think there's all sorts of conspiracies going on. 
the king is in fact in touch with the Austrians, in touch with others who have nasty designs on what they might do to the French. And so that begins to sour the pot. <clears throat> and just in general, then, um, <clears throat> uh, people become more nervous. After the, um, the assembly finishes its work in 1791, there's a new election, a new group comes in. And in addition to the king being worried about the king, the second big crisis is that France goes to war with Austria in 1792, largely because the French believe their ideals are so positive that everyone should have them. That those poor benighted people in Austria that these live are under the, These are the new ideas, right? The new ideas of, of France. Right. right. Yeah, right? Now have Liberty, they... equality, fraternity. Everyone should enjoy these civil rights and popular sovereignty. Right. It's like spreading things. democracy kind That's of thing. Right. It's yeah. that sort of thing. And there's some other uh, elements there as well. But they go to war, and it doesn't go well for France. So in the middle of 1792, King, who everyone suspects is not acting properly, perhaps treasonously, and a war which isn't going well, with the recognition if they lose the war, the revolution ends. This leads to what's called the Second French Revolution in the late summer of 1792. People break into the residency of the king. He's been moved back to Paris, into the Tuileries Palace. They chase the king who escapes out the back door, so to speak, with the queen, and they go to take refuge with the legislative assembly and said, hey, we're the king and queen. Protect us from the mob. They're, they're chasing us down the streets. And the um, men in the legislative assembly decide to do what politicians, unfortunately, too often decide to do. They decide not to decide. They say, we better have another election. And they have another election, and it elects a very radical group called the convention. And they decide they should try the king for treason, which they do, and they convict him of treason. They debate what the appropriate penalty should be. Some think he should just have his crown taken away and send him off to the countryside. Some say, no, we need to lock him up. Others say, no, we should cut his head off. That prevails, and in January 1793, they cut his head off. So that radicalizes the revolution because now the revolutionaries are regicides. And if they lose the war, they will not only have to face the monarch, monarchs of Europe that are defeating a revolution, now they're going to be uh, controlled by people who believe that they're regicides. And, and they're these, these assemblies people are running the country. Let me ask you about one person here. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I'm a fan of Edmund Burke, the Englishman, and he was concerned about one person, and you know who I'm talking about. Uh, the Queen. Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette. Yeah. The, some would say that the mistake they made was chopping her head off, too. Uh, well, they, uh, yeah, I mean, th there's obviously a debate about this. There's oh, a I debate know. about everything, everything else about the revolution. Exactly. But um, I do think she was particularly viscerally hated by the popular press in France. And it was inappropriate and uncalled for, accused of all sorts of nasty things. Okay, hold on right there. Yeah. The following is a pre-recorded program. War is raging in Europe. It's 1793, I guess, into 1794. 
and um, the king of France is dead and his queen is dead. And the question is, where, what's going to happen now? And how is, how revolutionary is the revolution going to be? Am yeah. I doing okay here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're fighting the war. And the, the big event that you're pointing to, of course, is that um, after the king is executed, the war is not going well. The members of the convention have to decide how to, how to proceed. And uh, they decide they should hand over executive power to these two committees, one of which is the Committee of Public Safety. And they, to try to get control of the situation, have to uh, decide how to proceed. And they decide to set up revolutionary tribunals to try people for unpatriotic actions. And that leads to what's called the terror, which is the most notorious and the bloodiest part of the revolution because, in fact, during the terror, 35 to 50,000 French citizens are put to death for unpatriotic actions. So it's a pretty, uh, the revolution, which had been relatively unviolent up until 1792, with the outbreak of the war and the beginning of the terror, becomes something very, very different. It seems like to me, knowing a little bit about the general history, that since then, when this situation occurs, that, that things have sort of gotten loose and people are being killed, um, France at that time was probably the most sophisticated nation on earth. And this is happening in the most, I mean, they were, this was a place that Diderot and, and yeah. Voltaire and all these people were going to create the, the perfect society. You know, they'd gone back to year one. I mean, not only were they making economic changes and political changes, but they were, they were, they, they were going to fix the world. Yeah, it was the center of the Enlightenment. And mm -hmm. certainly uh, people in France thought they were going to fix the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I think people were shocked. I mean, what the revolution demonstrated um, was that even this progressive, seemingly uh, incredibly positive society could blow up. And that's what happened in 1789 and what then accelerated by 1792, 1793, 1794. So I think what shocked everyone in the world is how could this prosperous, stable, enlightened country blow up like this and lead to this devastating violence? Because it's not only the terror, there's counter-revolutionary revolts break out in the Vendée, which is in the southwest. Huge and numbers. 200,000 people get killed uh, in that's the right, that's I mean, we're talking mega death now. Yeah, right, right. right. Um, and then um, there's other revolts that break out, um, and these lead to more repression. And so you're talking about a lot of violence, in addition to the war, which, of course, puts... Uh, to shame any violence, uh, even revolutionary violence. I mean, it's, this is true throughout history. We talk about violence of revolution, but the real violence is warfare. That's when the death tolls get high. We now think that during the wars from 1792 to 1814, when Napoleon is finally defeated, um, a million people are killed, a million soldiers. That doesn't count the home front. You're talking about a lot of people, and this is at a time when the, the populations aren't so great. France is probably 28 million people Well, I did, the outbreak I did, I, of the revolution, and a million people die in the war. Well, I've just learned in the last few years that the first 
great worldwide hero that I ever was interested in, like the third grade or something, was Napoleon. And they say that after Jesus and Abraham Lincoln, more books have been written about him than anybody. I believe and so, and he is, eventually comes into this story to, to settle things down. But then he went on this, this military uh, operation to, to, to conquer the world. And his strategy, I learned this by reading about uh, Pickett's Charge at, at uh, Gettysburg, was to get huge numbers of troops and just roll them over everybody, 200,000 troops. Yeah. And if he lost 100,000, so what? Now we, we won. Yeah, we, we learned uh, that he doesn't, I mean, he has very good relations apparently with his soldiers, is the little I've read about this mm-hmm. on Napoleon's uh, military exploits. But he, he was a great strategist, and one of the strategies was overwhelming the other side and moving lots of men very, very quickly just to overwhelm and outflank any of the other opposing armies. Um, so um, uh, certainly he changed warfare, but certainly that's the, uh, uh, that's the, uh, the problems that uh, continue to unfold. I mean, the wars continued. I, I can't even keep straight, and this is I'm supposed to know this stuff, how mm-hmm. many coalitions are our uh, before 1814, I think there are six, if my memory serves me correctly, um, of different countries coming together to fight against France before he's finally defeated in, the, in 1814. And within, there are two wars going on. There's the war externally for France, yes. and, and it's got to try to keep people around them who are... See, what they had done, if, and I'm not lecturing you here, but I'm running this up to flagpole for your approval. What they had done by killing their king was to scare monarchs everywhere. And, Absolutely. And, and say, you know, this could happen to you. And and indeed, that was one of the things that Edmund Burke and maybe somebody in Austria and somebody in Germany and Prussia were worried about is they've, the, the people, the crowd have sent a message now that uh, uh, just because you're the king doesn't mean you can't lose your head. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's one of the peculiarities about the French Revolution. We think of these great ideals that they stand for, liberty, equality, fraternity. In fact, it was these kind of missionary sense that these were universal, which in some respects makes them so dangerous. In the 18th century, the philosophers of the Enlightenment believed in cosmopolitanism, which meant they respected the differences of all of these different cultures and peoples that they began to learn about because of voyages of exploration and what have you. And they thought we could learn from them, and we could, they could learn from us, and there was this mutual give and take. With the ideals of the revolution, they came to the conclusion that they really knew what the universal ideals were. And everyone, obviously, should live under these ideals. And you have this missionary sense of needing to impose these on people. Well, people don't like to have ideals imposed upon them in general, especially if it's with armies and they're looking at bayonets and weapons. And the reaction against that, of course, is the creation of this of this incredible wave of nationalism that grows up in Europe, beginning with the Revolutionary Wars. Isn't this one of the first places that you get to define a nation and what it's all about, i.e. France? Yeah, well, it had been defined before. I mean, it certainly grows. Uh, the sense of national identity had grown in the 17th and 18th century. But what we think about, I think, is the kind of nationalism that's involved with protecting ourselves and fighting against others is largely a legacy of the French Revolution. And it's probably done more harm in Europe and other Mm -hmm. parts of the world than I would think anything else since that time. 
I mean, up until the defeat of Jena by the Prussians, the defeat of the Prussians at Jena and by Napoleon in 1806, they had a sense of what was distinctive about Germany, but it didn't have this militaristic side to it that they need to uh, sort of impose this on others. So this nationalism that grows up, I think, is very dangerous. And of course, that tears Europe apart for the next 200 years. And you get for part of the 19th century an effort on those pieces that are not defined yet. You get a Germany. You didn't have a Germany before. You get an Italy. You didn't have an Italy before that. And yeah, that's right. I mean, there are these two senses of nationalism that grow up that we historians always like to talk about simplifying things. Mm -hmm. I mean, one is that it's a subjective choice of people to belong to a nation. This is sort of Rousseau's notion. Right. This is, the, this is what the French think they're pushing. Others comes out of a tradition in Germany with Herder and the other people of the Storm and Stress that it's really all about heritage and language. So what makes a people a people, a nation? Is their culture. Is their culture. Right. Is the language they speak and the traditions they share. Well, sometimes those are in competition, right? I mean, some mm -hmm. people may speak a language, but they feel they have an obligation to a different nation state. That leads to tremendous problems, especially in Southeast Europe. And the 19th century is filled with disputes and conflicts that are generated by this different sense of nationalism of people believing they're different. I believe you just. Right next door. I believe you've just touched on the background of World War One uh, when you Indeed. said southeastern Europe is, is is defining who can live under whose rule, and and then later, of course, a, a really good example. I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is the Anschluss? I think it's called. Isn't that yeah. when? When all Germans should live in Germany, not in Austria. Yes, that's right. Or the Sudetenland, when Hitler right. decides that those Germans in Czechoslovakia should be part of Germany because they speak German. German, right. Right. I mean, this is the same thing Putin says about the people in Ukraine. They speak Russian, so therefore it should be part of Russia. I mean, this is, is not ended. Right. This, uh, this type of sense of identity of who belongs and who doesn't, who are the others who are with us is a very strong pull and often leads to very serious conflicts. Well, one of the things that I, you know, uh, that I, I learned young, uh, I don't know if it's true because I, it hasn't been corrected, if it, if it is that this spirit of uh, nationalism and liberty, equality, fraternity, uh, by conquering half of Europe, Napoleon just sort of spread the disease, so to speak. He, he, he and his people did. It was... An idea was let loose in the world, and and you and I were talking at one point yeah. about the fact that it hasn't been, it's still out there. I mean, they're still doing it there. in Tunisia today, or right. or Cairo, or yeah. some uh, almost any place you can, Venezuela, I guess. So. Yeah, and there are certainly positive and negative sides to that. I mean, if I had to pick a nationalism, I would probably pick the one that that uh, is based upon some notion of an individual's subjective choice that they want to belong to that community which is kind of the French and the American definition of what the nation should be. Um, although uh, stirred into that, especially in this country, is notions of language and heritage as well, and true anywhere. In other parts, um, that's much more prominent, and I think uh, a more dangerous uh, definition of nationalism. But it's certainly, I mean, I've been working on a man who lived through World War I, and there's nothing like reading the letters uh, of a person for the four years of World War I to bring home how serious that conflict was for Europe. I mean, France mobilized 
64% of the people between 18 and 40 in World War I. That's 20% of the population, right? Served in uniform. They lost 1.4 million people, uh, soldiers, and um, 3 million were uh, incapacitated permanently uh, because of the fighting. I mean, it's just the, the carnage of that war makes even the, even the Napoleonic Wars mm -hmm. seem, uh, seem relatively modest. And the political landscape was radically rearranged. Absolutely. I mean, uh, empires that existed had yeah. disappeared. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, both uh, England or Great Britain and France were, uh, along with Germany, were greatly weakened economically. Even if you won, you lost it in a way. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's, that's my assessment of it. In fact, this man I'm, I've been working on, Elie Alevi, comes to the conclusion that France, after the war, after World War I, is no longer a great power. Was England, he? America, and Russia are now, after the revolution, going to be the great powers. So he, he lives through the war. France in the late 19th century is a great power. But by the end of the war, he comes to the assessment that it no longer is. It's a top rank of the second tier, so to speak. Was he an historian? He was, yeah. I, I remember England. the name. Dr. Stephen Vincent, we are having a gentle conversation about something that's not very gentle, but is about in the world even today, uh, if not uh, some specific ideas, at least the methodology in some places, the people in the streets, the demonstrations uh, that are meaningful demonstrations uh, is, is what we're talking about tonight. We've got a quarter of the program left, and we're going to have it right after this. <laughs> 52 at News Radio 680 WPTF, hoping you will be inspired to uh, to look into the French Revolution because it is one of those things that happened that has been with us. And this is kind of like the 230th anniversary this year of the storming of the Bastille. That's right. And uh, yesterday, 230 yes, years. Right. It has a nine on the end. A lot of a lot of uh, anniversaries have a nine on the end of them. Um, we talked about the, the part that usually gets the most press, and that is the terror. And uh, look for a man named Robespierre, and you, you'll be on the way to something. I'm not just sure exactly what. But uh, one of the, the things that historians, I think, uh, discuss a lot is what happened to the revolution. It doesn't ever go away. It's always out there. When, you, right. when, you, when there is a crowd in the streets, whether it's in Cairo or, or St. Petersburg or wherever— uh, they are, in a way, children of the French Revolution. Right. But um, uh, things had to settle down somewhere, or France was not going to survive. And yeah. uh, one of their generals went off to Egypt and done, did fairly well. And so when he came back home, they, they, they sort of put him in charge. Didn't they? Yeah, well, he didn't do so well in Egypt. Yeah, okay. when, they, when, he, when, they, when he did come back, he, he left his troops there to come back because he heard there was some instability he might be able to take advantage of. He came back, and with a couple of his cronies, they staged a coup against the Directory government, which had been established in 1795. So in 1795, 1799, he becomes the first consul of France. And imagine this. This is a man from Corsica who became French by luck because Corsica had just become a French territory, had been sent to the military academy, and the best he could have hoped for in the old regime would have been to be a minor officer in the Royal Army. 
But with the outbreak of the war and the revolution, the advancement possibilities for someone of Corsican descent, not noble connections, uh, was much greater. And he turned out to be, as we talked about before, a great military leader. So anyway, he comes back and in 1799, 30 years old, he becomes the first consul of the most powerful country in Europe. This is an amazing story. Pretty and rapid rise there. Pretty rapid rise. <laughs> pretty amazing. And for the first 10 years of his rule, I mean, it's, it's, he, he can't do anything wrong, right? He, he reforms the legal system. He reforms the currency. Uh, he wins all the major battles. I mean, this guy's on a roll. I mean, he, uh, he's at the top of his game, and France controls uh, a good part of Europe and has, has peace treaties with most of the others. He, uh, he's a bit of a megalomaniac, however, and he doesn't really want anyone to cross him. And finally, you know, the Russians pull out of the continental system, and he gets so angry he decides to form an army to invade Russia. And that turns out to be the beginning of the end. It turns out to be a disaster. Um, but he's a remarkable figure. I mean, he's, he's one of these uh, incredible people, and even people who didn't like him when they met him were incredibly oppressed. I mean, I worked on a man, a liberal, who wrote a very nasty, some very nasty things about Napoleon. And then when he came back to power in 1815, uh, this guy, Benjamin Constance's name, came back and he met Napoleon and he said, this guy's the most impressive man I have ever met. Uh, and, and so he obviously had, had charisma, had presence, and had great, very great intelligence. The thing that that amazes me about him is he was impressed by the whole of uh, learning and a culture. He took scientists and people with him to Egypt. In fact, one of my favorite things is he found the uh, Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone. It yeah. wasn't he, but it was his troops yeah. doing what he told them to do that found right. the Rosetta Stone. And right. Without it, we wouldn't know a lot that we yeah. know about Egyptology that. began. Yeah. No, he's impressive that way. And. Uh, and apparently was a detail sort of guy. He was one of these people who apparently didn't have to sleep much, so he was there and had to be at every meeting where they're talking about uh, the changes of the legal system and what have you. He puts out a system of laws that's still in effect that's in right. France and, and in Louisiana, as a matter of fact. When, right. when we listened to the thing about the hurricane last night, they were talking about the not the counties, but what do they call them in Louisiana? Uh, uh, parishes. Parishes, yeah, but the, I mean— The Napoleonic Code. The Napoleonic still, Code yeah. is still in effect. Yep. No, it's still uh, still in many parts of the world. It is in South America as well. And so, um, yeah, well, impressive figure. Um, he, uh, you know, if you go to Paris and you go to the uh, the Pantheon, where uh, not the Pantheon, but the, uh, the, uh, the 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 site where he's buried, it's it's one of the most impressive uh, places you can be. I mean, they obviously take this as extremely important for their. For their history. If you go to Corsica, on the other hand, there's a plaque about, I don't know, eight inches long and about three inches tall that says this is where Napoleon was born. They don't really like Napoleon very much because he considered himself French and really didn't identify with the Corsicans. We need to go, oh. Stephen. Oh, that's uh, too bad. Well, um, well uh, I'm, Tom, we'll, we'll continue this another time. We'll right. continue this another time. Dr. Stephen Vincent, professor of history at North Carolina State University, and he's kind enough to come and visit with us occasionally. And tonight we've been talking about uh, the beginnings and in part of the French Revolution because yesterday was Bastille Day.